Hello, and welcome to a special edition uh, of sorts of the Pets App podcast. Uh, today, the tables are turned, and I, Lewis Martins from Pets App, will be interviewing Tom. Hi, Tom. Hi, Lewis. It, it feels a little bit strange to not be the one giving the introduction. It feels strange to be the one giving it, uh, that's, for, that's for sure. Um, I thought today, Tom, we could talk a little about something that I found super interesting uh, about the veterinary profession. Um, I, I've worked around vets for a couple of years now, since 2017, and something that I find uh, particularly interesting is that vets are quite reticent to talk about sales and making money. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, you have a lot of experience uh, balancing the fine line between business and uh, doing the best pet care possible. And I wanted to pick your brain on that. Yeah, it's an interesting one, hey, Lewis, um, because I don't think it is that fine a line or that much of a delicate balance. I think fundamentally in veterinary medicine, um, you have a self-selecting population of people who aren't terribly commercially motivated, money motivated. And I think that's a really great starting point. I definitely don't lament that starting point. Um, you have people with this passion at their core and that passion drives them to want to do the best for the animals committed to their care. Um, it's what brought me into uh, veterinary medicine for sure. Right. But that then means we work in a profession or a, a number of professions, a, a sector maybe, um, where you can do well by doing good. If you can start from the assumption, and it's not a 100% safe assumption, you know, there's always the odd bad apple, but I think it's a, a fairly safe assumption, the vast majority of cases, vast, vast majority of cases, that a vet won't recommend something for a patient unless it will improve the quality of that patient's life. And mm. if you start from that starting point, then you can be unambiguous in your recommendation. And I think sometimes we take our reticence a little bit too far and it can hamper our patient advocacy. So, you know, we lift up the lip of the dog with dental disease. We see it has very clear dental disease. We know from our training that a dental intervention will definitely improve the quality of that dog's life, improve the longevity. Um, and then we sort of say, oh, I think you should maybe start to think about considering a dental. You know, we suck the wind in through our teeth and, and that's our the, the sort of maximum strength of our recommendation. And sometimes that the, the weakness of the recommendation or the qualification, the unwarranted qualification of the recommendation um, is, is misinterpreted by the pet owner and then that pet doesn't end up um, getting what they need. So, yeah, uh, maybe you talk me around. Maybe it is more of an interesting balance. Well, this is, I think it's almost like it's a dirty word, right? To, you know, overcome that really high barrier uh, of, of drawing the line between what the, the the pet owner is coming in to directly talk to you about. And then something where, you know, if we went into a GP uh, for a checkup and they noticed a lump, they're not going to be like, oh, I think, uh, oh, I feel a bit awkward about talking about this lump. They're going to you know, they're going to recommend that there's a different follow-up for that. But I think when it comes to vets, there's this, there's this slight awkwardness. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And I, I, I'd be interested to know, like, how you think tech can help overcome that really high awkward barrier, that, that barrier to recommendation. 
Um, because I think we've heard quite a lot about how it reduces that that millennial awkwardness of of passing on another recommendation. Yeah, look, um, I think the um, worry is that sales or selling implies offering something that they don't need. So you don't you only have to sell it to them if they don't need it. And I think that's wrong. I think we have a lot of expertise in veterinary medicine that we take for granted. I'm talking across all the professions, veterinary receptionists, veterinary nurses uh, and vets have expertise that we kind of take for granted and we don't realize how valuable it is and how useful it is. Mm. And uh, pet owners don't necessarily know that, um, yeah, brushing your dog's teeth is a great idea, that uh, regular dentistry is a great idea, that there's preventive health care that can keep your pet healthier for longer. Mm. Mm. And exactly. so then, then the, the idea that you would spend time trying to convince the pet owner of this need, to me that's not sales, That that's that's advocacy. The other part of it is time, right? We don't have the time for it. We barely have time to do the things coming in through the door um, that absolutely need doing that the pet owners are already asking for. You're going to see that pet once a year potentially for 10 minutes, and you're expecting the vet to recommend everything that patient could possibly need. Um, I think that, that that's a very tricky expectation to set. So then you asked about technology, and I don't want to duck that question, obviously, um, as a self-professed um, technologist as well as a vet. I think what technology can do, so what we've tried to build with Pets app, is um, depressurize that one annual consultation and create opportunities for micro-engagements throughout the year, opportunities to advocate for that patient even when they aren't there in front of you. And so you could send a push notification campaign to cats and dogs over the age of two or three, letting them know that, um, letting their owners know, I should say, that uh, 80% of adult dogs and cats suffer from dental disease. You know, that's something that most pet owners won't be aware of. It's something that will be causing pain to their pets that they don't want their pets to be going through and experiencing. And it would generate a potential advocacy opportunity that you wouldn't otherwise have had. And one that will come in asynchronously and it will be non-urgent and you can address it in your own time. Um, So I think we've got to be careful not to ask more of veterinary teams or say, you know, you're not doing good enough because trust me, People in clinics are working incredibly hard and they're doing their very best for the patients that are committed to their care. But there is more There is more to be done. There's huge compliance gaps. 92% of all pet issues go unaddressed by veterinary expertise. So for me, it's what tools can we arm these people with to help them help more animals, to, to augment their existing patient advocacy efforts. And that's where the, the pet health plan comes in really, doesn't it? It's, it's interesting, you know, Lewis, because I think in the early days of wellness plans, there was a slightly cynical view of them that you would sell a pet owner, and it was sell, sell a pet owner a bucket of items, most of which they probably didn't need. And if they did, they probably wouldn't remember to use anyway. And so while they got a discount on the bucket, the likelihood that they would consume all those items was low and you'd make money off the unconsumed items. So that was the, the, the cynical view of a wellness plan. And I think that, mm. that 
still lingers around in some cases today. But it's just it's completely the wrong approach. If if you are thinking from a sort of commercial mindset, the veterinary business model is all around customer lifetime value. You have high rates of loyalty in veterinary medicine. Um, you know, pets, pet owners keep bringing their pets back um, to the same vet um, uh, most most often. And so, the idea that you would try and rinse them for a year um, and trick them into renewing if you could. Um, it's just, I mean, it's the wrong thing to do in, mm. in every sense. The modern view of a wellness ban is, hey, look, if you agree to go along with what I'm recommending for your animal, which I'm recommending from just having nothing but the animal's best interest in mind, then I may give you a discount and I'll certainly allow you to uh, budget the spend uh, month by month. And once they've signed up to that plan, I can then use those items, those that the what the, their entitlement is within the plan, as opportunities to engage with the animal mm. uh, and with the owner. And so I can I can proactively remind you of what items you have left to use. You know, did you know that Fluffy still has the the annual um, urine test? If you could bring in a sample, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's uh, for for many reasons. We know that there's preclinical disease. This is why this is kind of the whole thing with preventive medicine. We want to find issues that we can treat before they become serious, before they impact the life of the pet. And so, in veterinary medicine, the more you look, the more you find. And you want this reference database so that the next time you look, you have a better opportunity to spotting uh, pathological aberrants from the norm. And so encouraging pet owners to make use of the preventive healthcare items in a carefully designed wellness plan is great for the pet. It gives the pet owner what they want. And it's good for the veterinary team because we have the advocacy opportunities, the opportunities to make patients' lives better that we want, that we came into it for. And guess what? It's good for business. You can do well by doing good. It, it sounds like the key the key thing there is to motivate client involvement, really, um, and that sending these little reminders is such an important part of of you know it, I, as you say that the happier the pet owner, the happier the clinic, and and the, certainly happier the the business itself. Um, yeah, I think I think it is. I mean, that's a big part of it is not just motivate client involvement, but listen when they tell you that they want to be involved. And mm. it's interesting because the millennial generation, uh, which uh, I'm a part of, um, you're a part of, I think we sort of at different ends of it. But um, I am technically as millennial, unfortunately. I am in the, the cusp of the two. Um, but yes, go on. I think, it, I think it's terrible that you feel you need to say unfortunately because <laughs> I think millennials, I would say this as a, as a millennial, um, but I'm not a self-flagellating millennial in the way that you are. I think millennials are great, right? <laughs> millennials are now the largest pet owning demographic. Mm. There's really good signs that they are very responsible pet owners. And I think that's because they grew up with pets as siblings. Their parents were the first generation to really treat pets as part of the family. So they grew up with the dog uh, sleeping on the bed with them, you know, up on the mm. sofa, competing for that prime position um, mm. in the <laughs> evening. You know, um, and, and so when a vet says to a millennial, hey, you should really um, 
be doing a dental for for Fluffy? They say, yeah, you know, they get it. Yeah, I, mm. I, I expect to take care of my own teeth. And, and of course, I'd expect the same for my dog. But there's a problem. They see veterinary products and services as inaccessible. Mm. Baby boomers, you ask them in general, and we're generalizing, see veterinary products and services as relatively accessible. And why? Well, it's the same way they access most products and services. You go to the physical location, you consume, you pay, you leave. Millennials mm. are used to being able to action things when they want to. So there's this always on culture that if I get in home late from a night out or from a late shift and I find that I've run out of the prescription diet for my dog, I want to be able to do something about it there and then. Mm. And if I can't jump on my veterinary clinic's app to request a new bag of dog food, which I don't mind if they don't action that until the morning. I just want to delegate it from my to-do list to their to-do list. If I can't mm. do that, I'll go on Amazon and I'll buy the nearest equivalent thing while it remains front of mind. Because we're busy, we've got a lot on. Um, you know, Often in, in a millennial uh, couple, both partners are working. There's not really a lot of bandwidth to look after those life admin components. Mm. right? So they want this always on culture. And they would like having more touch points. There's one aspect, uh, you know, I don't really buy into, but you can see happening is a certain cynicism around the expert. There's not this same um, uh, deference to authority. And maybe every generation says, says this about the next generation coming up. You know, <laughs> you don't respect uh, your parents, that sort of thing. But um, I think that it's true that millennials want to be more involved in the decision-making process. They expect a concierge service of guide me through this decision that I'm making rather than you're the expert, make the decision for me. And so, yes, they are highly compliant with recommendations, but they sometimes need more touch points before agreeing to the recommendation. And again, that's where this, this digital experience comes in that allows sort of this higher, it's not higher touch, it's tech touch. You can automate a lot of it. You can you can provide a lot of it, just make it available, available to them digitally. So it's not sucking up bandwidth, but it does give them uh, a sort of longer journey with more touch points along the decision-making process. So there's a huge opportunity here. You've got this large population of highly compliant pet owners that currently describe our products and services as inaccessible if we can make them more accessible, if we can layer on convenience on top of the high trust that already exists, we will expand the the proportion of pet care spending that comes through the veterinary channel. And for me, the veterinary team are the best people to direct that spending. If you're mm. going to make an investment in the health and well-being of your pet, I hope it will be your local veterinary team that help you direct that spending. Mm. Well, it, it's interesting that you talk about veterinary team as well, because there's been a lot of writing, some of it yours, about um, the, the vet team as, as a unit, as opposed to just the vet, you know, the nurse, the reception staff, uh, the business team, and et cetera. And that provides so many more opportunities uh, to input on, on the, pet, the pet's health in, in general and the pet's well-being. Um, and I think what tech can do, yeah, it does pr provide a little bit of motivation, but it, it allows more people to kind of know the pet owner and the pet and be able to recommend where someone might not have been able to and work more cohesively as a unit, as opposed to relying on one individual or a very rushed 
receptionist at the end of a, a an appointment to recommend nine different pieces of of dog food and a, and a and a pet health plan. You're going to have to talk a bit longer, Lewis, because I'm still smirking from you referencing my writing in conversation with me. That feels <laughs> super, super, super cringe. But uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, Jenkins 2020. Um, no, you're right that the collaborative experiences are what this is all about. And it's interesting. We see on the app where a, a virtual interaction doesn't involve a nurse, doesn't involve a veterinary receptionist. The likelihood that that interaction will be monetized goes down. The likelihood um, of really strong positive feedback from the client goes down because we collect uh, client feedback at the end of every interaction. And guess what? Vets do a great job on their own, but collaborative teams do even better, right? And the average transaction value of that interaction goes down. So there's a really important part to um, delivering value and communicating value, and guess what? Capturing some value for the for the for the veterinary clinic that uh, veterinary receptionists and veterinary nurses play. You wouldn't think of running a clinic without a nursing team or without a reception team, and so you shouldn't think about designing digital experiences that exclude them either. Everyone has their role to play in these joined up online to offline experiences. Well, there we go. I think uh, what's super interesting is that you've just discussed the perfect sales pipeline for a vet clinic. Um, again, it's not sales. I must remember it's patient advocacy. Um, that's been super interesting, Tom. And thank well, you very I, much. I think just, you know, th thank you, Lewis. But just to finish on, um, you know, we can... We can call this sales, but I think part of the reticence to do that is that we as a profession, and sometimes we listen to the detractors too much, but we do get a hard time about vet bills and how expensive it is. Mm. And we don't want to compound that by people thinking that we're recommending uh, things that their pets don't need because we're not. And, and so I think there is an issue of... Um, having the confidence, the self-confidence ourselves to say we provide a phenomenal service. And it's crazy. I mean, I saw an article, um, I think it was the Prime Minister's sister wrote the article, and I'm sorry if I'm disparaging the wrong person. Um, I think it was in The Spectator, hmm. um, complaining about the cost of um, really complicated abdominal surgery to remove a foreign body um, stuck in the intestines of their pet. And it's like, if this was happening in private human medicine, you could add a few zeros to that bill. You know, that was incredible value. And yet, <laughs> there was still, they were still bemoaning the cost of veterinary services. And I think they even described it as a racket, which is just deeply, deeply offensive to people that are dedicating their lives to the service of animal welfare. And so I think that's, that's genuinely that's a big part of the sensitivity. It's my hope that what we're building in PetsApp helps us fight the good fight in communicating the value, the incredible value that is being delivered by these veterinary teams. Fantastic. And what a way to end things. Thank you very much uh, for joining me today. And how do you normally sign off? <laughs> not like that. <laughs> you were too <laughs> shy. <laughs> I'm not... 
<laughs> I'm not terribly good at this either, but I know not to ask the person I'm interviewing how to sign off. No, hey. just, say, just say thanks and goodbye. And leave a gap where I can, I can say thank you to you too. Okay, well... <laughs> I promise I have listened to every single episode. Uh, That's all for today. Thanks very much for joining me, Tom. Thank you, Lewis. Okay, goodbye. (laughs) Okay, goodbye to you too. (laughs) Ricky, is is there a podcast in there somewhere?